Father, we thank you for sending your son. Uh, Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness. And Spirit, we adore your work amongst us. We ask you, the triune God, to speak to us through your word so that we might be fully committed and compassionate as we follow Jesus on the road of discipleship. Would you knock down anything that would stand in our way? Help us to knock off all the things that cling and hinder to us. Would we see the same joy that our Savior did? And will we follow him with the grace he provides? Speak to us now, we pray in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. Back in 1914, an incredible journey began. A group of men trying to do something that had never been done before. Uh, the crew of the Endurance, uh, helmed by Captain Ernest Shackleton, set out to cross the landmass of Antarctica. That's uh, quite an endeavor. It required incredible commitment to even try it. They secured uh, that ship, the Endurance, specially made for the voyage. They prepared, as you, would have, as you would try to, as best you can, for the harsh elements and all the dangers they would find. And yet, despite their commitment and preparation, within just two days of leaving port, they found themselves stuck in ice. Uh, they used all the tools available to them and certainly all the strength they had. They made slow, halting progress for a time. But eventually, that thick, cold ice won out. And the endurance, the ship specially made for the voyage, cracked under the pressure. Uh, the men had to leave the ship. And as a result, that journey that started off as one of commitment to a, a goal ended as a journey of compassion to rescue sailors whose lives were in peril. Uh, Captain Shackleton realized they would not survive out in the ice. So he found a, a land mass that they could go to, a place called Elephant Island. Uh, the sailors did their best to find shelter and to survive. But Sha uh, Captain Shackleton knew that they would not be saved unless he did something. So he left his crew and went back to the mainland and came back on a rescue mission. Only to be frustrated not once but twice. It was only on the third attempt that he was able to bring rescue boats back and to save his men from that frigid island. Now, that great story took about 20 months to happen. Um, ultimately, it was a failure. They did not make their way across Antarctica as committed as they were to the prospect. But it does show the virtues of commitment and compassion of a captain that wouldn't let his sailors die. Uh, we come to a section in Luke's gospel where a journey is about to begin, uh, one that will not end in failure, but in success. Uh, it's a journey of Jesus on the road to Jerusalem, David's city, the place the prophets had foretold where his moment of glory must happen. Uh, Jesus won't let anything stand in his way. Just like the prophet Isaiah predicted, he will set his face like flint and he will make his way to Jerusalem and to that cross of Calvary and to the empty tomb. Uh, Jesus, along the way, will demonstrate not just commitment, though, but a heart filled with compassion for sinners of all types, a heart set on rescuing us from the wrath of God and the fiery fury that we all deserve. 
Uh, we've reached a point in Luke's gospel where a transition has happened. Um, we've finished uh, back in the last year uh, the section which is Jesus slowly but surely revealing himself to his disciples. Uh, he was first an itinerant preacher. Uh, then he was one who did miracles. And then finally they saw him on that mount of transfiguration as a glimpse of his true glory was revealed. But now we've reached a point where the emphasis changes. Uh, verse 51 tells us, Jesus knows his time is short, that when the days drew near for him to be taken up. Uh, Jesus knows that he has a course to run, a course that will end in the cross. And so now he will fully commit himself to that journey. He sets his face to go to Jerusalem. But it's not just Jesus that's going to go on this journey. The next 10 chapters will tease out. Jesus brings his disciples with him. Uh, and as he does, he teaches lessons along the way of what it means for each of us to follow Jesus on the road of discipleship, a road that leads through death and to eternal life with God, a road he's calling each and every one of us to this morning. Uh, this morning, we will look at the first of the two encounters on this road journey from the north of the countryside of Galilee to the heart of Jerusalem itself. And as we do, we will learn this all-important lesson. Uh, if we are to follow Jesus and hear his call, we must have hearts full of commitment and compassion. Uh, to follow Jesus as a disciple, you need a heart full of commitment and compassion. Uh, we'll see that in two sections this morning, first in 51 through 56. We'll see that discipleship requires compassion, not condemnation. Compassion, not condemnation. Then in 57 through 62, we'll see that discipleship requires commitment, not comfort. Commitment, not comfort. In all this, I hope you will be convinced follow Jesus with a heart filled with his compassion, and not with half-hearted commitment, with, but with your whole self to the glory of God. Let's begin in that first section. Compassion, not commitment. Verses 51 through 56. Uh, the transition verse happened in 51. Jesus is now headed toward Jerusalem. And, and quickly thereafter, our attention comes to the first encounter that he has along the way. To get from point A of the countryside of Galilee in the north to point B of Jerusalem in the south, any faithful Jew would know that they had a problem on their hands. Uh, that is because the route that goes directly from point A to point B goes through a point C, a place called Samaria, a place where no self-respecting Jew would ever want to go. Uh, there's a reason for that. Uh, the Samaritans were half-breed heretics in Jewish thought. Uh, they were people of the land that had picked the wrong king back in the days of the kings. They had been taken off into exile and judgment. And when they had returned back, they had intermarried with the people of the land. That's why they were half-breed. That meant there was ethnic hostility between them and the pure-blooded Jews. But also, their religion was defective. Uh, the Samaritans rejected all the books except for the first five of the Hebrew Bible. All the prophets were wiped away. And as a result of that, they believed that 
the temple in Jerusalem was not the authorized place for people to worship God. Instead, that should happen on Mount Gerizim, which just so happened to be in Samaria. So as a result, there are people with the wrong bloodlines, the wrong religion, and the sort of people you absolutely should not associate with. And, and to be sure, the hatred went both ways. There was buckets of bad blood between them. A Jew knew that they should not travel through Samaria, even if they had to go days out of their way to avoid it. And Samaritans knew that if any Jew was foolish enough to come through Samaria, well, they would make their life miserable as a reminder, stay off our turf. Which makes what Jesus does all the more interesting. Jesus sits, of course, straight through the heart of Samaria. Verse 52, he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Not only are they going to go through Samaria, he intends to stay there. But the Samaritans have other ideas. Verse 53, but the people did not receive him. Don't skip over the implications of those verses. Uh, the people did not receive him. Uh, in a moment, they closed the doors of their homes to Jesus. And in so doing, they closed their hearts to him as well. Now, it's bad enough to close your home and your heart to any old traveler coming through your town. But how much worse is it to close it to the very Lord of life, uh, to the one who is himself on a rescue mission for sinners of all types, sinners like the Samaritans? This was a grave sin. But there's a reason why they did it that Luke tells us. Because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Uh, this was just another instance of the bad blood between the Jews and Samaritans in their book. Uh, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi going to Jerusalem, that illegitimate city. So in their mind, they're justified to keep him at arm's length. Well, as a result of that, we see an encounter between Jesus and his disciples. Verse 54 and when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, the response of James and John uh, seems ridiculous to us at first glance, but I think as you think about it more, it demonstrates two things, both faith and fury. Now, James and John had walked and talked with Jesus for quite a while. They had seen his transfigured glory and they had come to believe that he had the authority from God to do miracles and preach the kingdom. Uh, they knew that to insult Jesus was a grave sin. And they, it seems like they remembered a story from their Old Testament, from 2 Kings 1, of the prophet of God, Elijah. Uh, Elijah had a, an evil king that was sending his army to harass him. And to prove that he was, in fact, the prophet of God, God allowed him to call down fire from heaven to consume that army 50 men at a time. It seems like the disciples recognize the gravity of what it is to re reject Jesus and the authority present within Jesus to judge. And so they asked Jesus, hey, you want to give us some power to call down a little fire? I think, though, that we would be wrong to just see this as an act of faith. 
Certainly by the fact that Jesus rebukes them. Luke doesn't tell us what he says exactly, but verse 55, but he turned and he rebuked them. Clearly they were off base. And I think the reason why is because it revealed their hearts was filled with fury and fire and condemnation when it should have been filled with compassion. Uh, Now to be sure, this is not because Jesus is not offended by what the Samaritans do. Now there will be come a day when Jesus himself will be the one that will uh, judge the nations with a rod of iron, who will himself mete out the judgment upon all of the earth for all the insults he and his father have experienced at the hands of sinners. But Jesus also knows that this is not the moment for that judgment to come. Uh, Now is not the time for him to wield the rod. Now is the time for him to be struck by it. Uh, Jesus himself will not, on this course, crush his enemies. He will be crushed by them, all so that he can pour out compassion on sinners who don't deserve an ounce of God's mercy. See, the disciples fell into the trap of mistaking the moment they were in. Uh, They understood the justice of God and the injustice of sin and offense against Jesus, but they misunderstood Their calling would be one of compassion to preach repentance and forgiveness of sins and how you can avoid the wrath of God by trusting in Jesus. Now recognize, brothers and sisters, that even though we live 2,000 years after the disciples finally wrapped their head around that and realized their calling was, in fact, to preach to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, maybe even to the same Samaritan village, And yet we still have the same sort of tendencies in our hearts. We can still find ourselves quicker to reach for condemnation than compassion when we encounter sinners of all types. Think what happens in your heart when someone does something hurtful to you. They say something they shouldn't have said. They do something they shouldn't have done. And in that moment, you feel a pang of righteous anger. It's not right for an image bearer of God to be treated this way. God is not pleased with this sort of behavior. That's right, and we should have a sort of zeal for righteousness to be done, even to us. And yet, at the same time, there is another impulse, uh, one that doesn't come from the Spirit of God, but from the flesh, an impulse to say, how dare they? Uh, If only God would give them a little bit of divine justice right now. Maybe not too bad. Maybe just a blown tire or something. But I sure would feel a lot better if they got what was coming to them. Uh, Certainly we do this to public figures. Uh, Maybe someone who's on the wrong side of some issue of righteousness in a political sense. I mean, notice how free even Christians are to speak about a person as if It would be right and good for them to experience immediate fiery fury in God's judgment. Uh, Somewhere along the way, our hearts lose their way when we give in to condemnation before we've taken the time to show compassion. Now, of course, we do need to be insistent on issues like abortion. I, I hope you did feel righteous anger as you heard the news about the police beatings in Memphis. Uh, We do need to recognize that there are wrongs, but we also need to remember that one day they will be righted. And this isn't that day. Uh, This is the day for preaching of compassion and of mercy 
and the forgiveness of sins. So the next time someone is cruel to you or on the wrong side of an issue of righteousness, maybe pray for them before you pray for their fiery fury of judgment to come upon them. Maybe think about a gentle word that might win them over before you think of cutting them with words even intended to correct. Uh, I heard a story about the man who founded my seminary uh, that I went to back in the day, um, Dr. D. James Kennedy. Uh, Dr. Kennedy was a TV preacher, so he was really well known in the public. Um, and he was known for addressing those really thorny, really important flashpoint issues in the public square, like the sanctity of life. Um, and as a result, he caught a lot of flack. Uh, one particular Sunday, uh, he had a heckler come to his church. He stood outside the church doors with a sign, a sign that had an insult toward Dr. Kennedy and even an insult toward Jesus on the sign. He screamed at people on the way in. He yelled things that can only be considered blasphemies. And he did everything he could to uh, give Dr. Kennedy a bad reputation. Now, after the service, Dr. Kennedy was known for staying until the last person left, greeting each and every person that was on the church property. And so one of the deacons hung back just to watch what would happen with his heckler if he hung around long enough for Dr. Kennedy to come out. Sure enough, the heckler didn't leave, and Dr. Kennedy, true to his pattern, came out. And instead of shying away, he came right up to the man. Uh, that deacon said that he was shocked to see Dr. Kennedy smiling, shaking the man's hand, speaking with him with gentleness and humility. He was even more shocked when Dr. Kennedy invited the man to join him at a local diner to continue their conversation. He was so worried about it, in fact, that he went himself to see what would happen and he watched a several hour conversation unfold where Dr. Kennedy did all he could to win this man with the compassion of Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, we are called to follow Jesus, to seek righteousness, for it to be on earth as it is in heaven, as far as it's able to us. But that can only be done with a heart full of compassion. And it can't be done with a heart full of condemnation. There's a second virtue held out to us this morning. That is of the need for commitment and not comfort. That's what we see in verses 57 through 62. Commitment, not comfort. Now, just because something is difficult doesn't make it something not worth doing. There was a man by the name of Otto Roeder. He had an idea that no one had ever had before. Um, he was a baker and an inventor. And he thought, wouldn't it be grand if people could buy loaves of bread that straight out from the oven were sliced up and packaged and easy to consume. But it turned out that was a very difficult thing to do. So Otto went out and came up with a plan to make it happen. He secured funding, drew up plans, he secured a manufacturing spot, and went looking for people to be able to buy this machine that didn't yet exist. It was all very difficult. People laughed at him, told him it would never work. No one would ever buy something like pre-sliced bread. Now, it got even worse when a fire destroyed the facility he was using to make his prototype, and he lost all of his money. At that moment, it would have been easy for him to give up and assume everyone was right. But, but Otto was committed to this idea. So he got another round of funding, 
found another place to manufacture it, and got a working prototype. And wouldn't you know, a local baker thought it was a good idea, and so did his customers. And before you know it, the orders were pouring in faster than Otto could keep up with. And everyone came to the conclusion that this was a great idea. In fact, one of history's greatest ideas, which is why we have that phrase, it's the greatest idea since sliced bread, right? Uh, just because something's hard to do doesn't mean it's not worth doing. Uh, certainly that's the case for the Christian life. Uh, let's be clear, the Christian life is not an easy one. Uh, though it begins with something that's given to you for free, rightly understood, it costs you everything. And yet you gain far more than you lose when you choose to commit your life to following Jesus on that road of discipleship. Uh, the next section shows us three quick-hitting snapshots of Jesus interacting with three men, each reckoning with an obstacle of comfort when it comes to following Jesus. The first is in verse 57. It's a man who has to get over the obstacle of the comfort of home. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This one starts off well enough. A man who talks a big game when it comes to following Jesus. I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus. Just say the word. Let me join Team Jesus. Uh, but Jesus is more perceptive than that. He knows the, the inner workings of our hearts. And he knows this man has a love for the comforts of hearth and home a love that will get in the way of him knowing that this world is not his home, that he needs to pursue the eternal home of heaven with Jesus. Uh, he uses a proverbial saying to say it, uh, foxes have holes, birds of the ears have nests, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, he uses the example of our furry friends who through intuition that God gives them, they know exactly how to survive. They get a cozy hole in a tree or under a rock. Uh, they're birds, they collect materials, and they make their spot to call home, to find some comfort, shelter from the elements. But Jesus, in his ministry, he's been wandering around. Many nights, he surely slept out in open fields. And though it wouldn't have been a sin for him to have a place of his own, to show us that this world is not his home, Jesus had no permanent residence. Now, to be sure, as disciples, we should not draw the conclusion that it's wrong to own a property or to rent an apartment or to have somewhere we call home. And yet, however much we might do homemaking in this world, we can never come to the conclusion that this world is our home. We always need to be ready to let go of the comforts, even over the four walls and a roof over our heads, the warmth and the goodness of a home to follow Jesus on the path of discipleship. Uh, living at the moment we do, I think one of the common temptations, even for Christians, is to spend so much time, money, and effort on their homes that they actually get in the way of our following Jesus in discipleship. Uh, we treat them more like castles to keep people out of. Uh, then warm, inviting places to invite them to draw close to Jesus. Uh, sometimes we're so busy 
doing home projects that we don't have time for people or even to come to church. I think this text leads us to ask the question, will we hear Jesus' call, even if it means committing ourselves to the point where we have to let go of some of the comforts of home? Uh, the second man, he has a different issue. His is the comfort of setting the agenda. That's what we see in 59 through 60. This time it starts in a different way. Jesus reaching out to the man. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. In this case, Jesus initiates same way that he did with those first apostles. Follow me. They dropped their nets and followed him. But in this case, when Jesus challenges the man, it sure seems like this guy has some other things that he wants to accomplish first. Uh, he gives him what seems like a legitimate excuse at the uh, beginning. Leave, um, let me first go and bury my father. After all, the Old Testament tells us we are to honor father and mother. Uh, Jewish culture at the time held in high esteem the re responsibilities of a family member to properly bury their loved, uh, their loved one who died. So isn't Jesus' response, let the dead bury their own dead, you go preach the kingdom? Isn't that just cold and callous? Well, I don't think so. Um, Dr. Phil Riken, I think, points out rightly that Jews back in those days, they made a, a real effort that when a loved one died, to bury that loved one by sunset. Uh, they did not leave dead bodies hanging around. And that meant from the time that a loved one died to the time they were in a tomb, you were occupied and busy and obligated to be doing things. Uh, notice that Jesus just finds this guy wandering around the, along the road. We don't know where he's going or what he's up to, but it certainly doesn't sound like he's in the midst of fulfilling his obligations to a dead father. More likely then, he's asking Jesus for functionally an indefinite leave of absence. Oh, sure, I'll join Team Jesus, but, um, you know, my dad's getting up there in years. It'd be great if I could just hang around and help with the home affairs until one day he declines and, you know, after he's dead, then I'll have the free space and the margin to come and serve with you, Jesus. He's trying to set the agenda. Uh, but following Jesus, it forces us to make a, question, uh, a choice between commitment and comfort, even when it comes to setting the agenda for ourselves. Uh, how often do we have something we would like to do? Uh, something that might be good and legitimate, but it's getting in the way of something that we know Jesus is calling us toward. Maybe that's reaching out to a neighbor. Maybe that's even caregiving for a family member. Each and every time when we tell Jesus, I'll obey you, but I'll do it on my own timeline. Uh, really, we are disobeying his call to get on the road of discipleship and come and follow him. Uh, Jesus sets the time frame, he sets the agenda, and we need to be willing to sacrifice even the comforts of our schedules and our priorities if we are to be fully committed to him. There's a third and final encounter in verses 61 through 62, this time dealing with the comfort of the old life, a man who doesn't want to make a break with his old self in order to live his new life with Jesus. Verses 61 and 62 Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. 
But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Uh, We're back to someone asking Jesus instead of Jesus asking them. And once again, he has an excuse why he can't come right now. A request for Jesus. Just, Just let me go back and say goodbye to my loved ones. Again, sounds reasonable enough. Don't just leave them wondering where he went to. Uh, But I think there's a layer beneath the surface here that shows that his motives are less than pure. And in fact, he loves too much the comforts of his old life to begin a new one with Jesus. Uh, Jesus responds with a agriculture proverb. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, uh, the idea there is if you're plowing, you can't get a straight furrow unless you keep your eye focused on what's ahead of you. If you take the time to look back, you're going to be zigzagging all over the place. A bit like trying to walk on a balance beam. You've got to look ahead, not to the behind or your side. But I think there's something else happening here. Because there was another man who is called to uh, a road of service to God. And who asked to go back and say goodbye to his loved ones. The prophet Elisha. Uh, Elisha had been called by Elijah the prophet, uh, and he asked for permission to go back and kiss his mother and father goodbye. But when he did so, Elisha did an act that was designed to show a break between his old life so that he could be fully committed to his new one. Elisha took his plow, same exact word, and he burned it as a way of saying, no going back, no going back. See, brothers and sisters, uh, when you choose to follow the call of Jesus, there is a choice between the comforts of your old life and full commitment to Jesus. Uh, You can't do half of one and half of the other. You can't cozy up to your old attitudes and patterns and tendencies. You can't keep the same acquaintances in exactly the same way as they were before. Uh, Because Jesus calls you to follow him with full commitment even to the point of dying to yourself. All of your sin and all of your sin tendencies and all the people that used to encourage you in them. Uh, Jesus tells you to leave them behind and come on the road to Jerusalem to join him on the path through death into eternal life. Uh, Friend, he does that not out of callousness or because he's cruel, but because you will gain far more than you'll ever lose. Uh, You will gain eternity and an eternal kingdom. But best of all, you will gain an eternal relationship with the God who made you. Uh, Jesus knows that his road will be one filled with suffering and death. And he knows when he tells us to follow him that he is calling us to the same sort of life. And yet there is a joy that makes it all worth it. A joy set before him that allowed him to endure the cross and it's shame. So we too can follow him with hearts full of commitment and compassion, knowing that it'll all be worth it when we get there. Our brothers and sisters, uh, we live at a time when I think comfort is one of the greatest threats that Christians in the place that we are living and the time we are living face in terms of obstacles that comes between us and our discipleship with Jesus. Uh, There's lots of ways this expresses itself, but I I think one of the more obvious ones is to our commitment to do something that 
previous generations of Christians absolutely assumed um, was just the basics of being a disciple. Uh, that is attending church each Sunday. Uh, you can look at statistics and see the decline. Uh, evangelicals like our church are going to church less frequently. Um, they don't seem to see any issues with it by and large. And as a result, we are seeing declines in commitment across the board. Um, now, just speaking as your pastor, I'm encouraged for each and every one of you who's here, and every Sunday you're here, I praise the Lord for it. Uh, but realize that the Bible actually tells us that we have an obligation to not forsake assembling together, as some are in the habit of doing in Hebrews. And when we don't even have enough commitment to discipleship with Jesus to do this basic thing, it harms us, it harms our other fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and ultimately it betrays a lack of commitment to us in our discipleship. Now, brothers and sisters, none of us will ever do anything perfectly in this life. Everything that we do right is by the grace of Jesus. And yet we are called to full commitment. And we have to trust that the Spirit of God can grant us the grace, though imperfectly, to live out his commands in a way that honors him. So I invite you to consider, how can you be more faithful in your church attendance? Uh, how can you be more faithful in your calling to be fully committed to Christ in your parenting? or in witnessing to people in your workplace, or in being upright and honest even when it costs you something. Uh, friend, it will be painful. It will feel like you're dying at times, but you will gain so much more than you'll lose. Would you be willing to follow Jesus on the path through death into eternal life on the road of discipleship? Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you've heard lots about following Jesus and maybe you're still working through some questions. I, I want you to hear at least these two things about what it means for someone to follow Jesus. It means understanding both his compassion and the commitment he requires of us. Uh, you can't become a Christian without understanding why Jesus was so committed to going to Jerusalem. It wasn't because he was on some sort of city tour. Uh, he was on a mission to give his life as a sacrifice in the place of sinners. Uh, that's what the cross of Christianity is all about. It is the instrument that cruel men used to kill Jesus. Uh, he did that willingly for a purpose, allowing his life to pay the penalty that the sins of all types of sinners deserved uh, to experience themselves. And because Jesus did that faithfully, it's possible for us to be forgiven. Uh, Jesus didn't just die, he rose from the dead to a new life. And now he offers us a chance to leave behind our old life of, of sin and inevitable judgment from God and instead to take up a new life, one filled with joy, even as it is with sorrows. Uh, to do that, you need to fully trust Jesus to be able to save you. You need to call upon his name Ask him to forgive you of your sins. You also need to turn away from your old ways to make a clean break with your old life and get on the road of discipleship to follow Jesus. Uh, that's where the commitment comes in. Uh, you can't say you want to go with Jesus and keep living the way you have been living. If you truly get on the road after Jesus, you will see your life inevitably change from the inside out. 
But friend, no matter how hard it might be, no matter how many friends you might lose or family members you might become estranged from or how many things that you used to love you might have to stop doing, what you receive back will be so much greater. The compassion of the God who made you, the rescue of the Savior who was sent for you, and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit inside you. Uh, Friend, if you don't don't know whether you have started that path of discipleship after Jesus, uh, or maybe you have questions about it, I I invite you, you're in a room filled with people that are, for the most part, are Christians. Um, If you randomly pick someone to your left or your right, my guess is they will be glad to explain whatever you don't understand if you just be brave enough to ask. Uh, We as a church would love to do nothing more than to help you to know and trust Jesus. Um, If you give us the opportunity, I, I pray we would do that with compassion. Now, to all of us as a church, uh, we need to recognize this twin calls that were given to us to follow Jesus in discipleship, of both commitment and compassion. They're never something that we're going to do perfectly. And yet, by Jesus' grace, with his word guiding us, and even with the encouragement of fellow believers, we can truly do this in a way that honors our Lord. I was thinking this week of people that I thought that did this well, I thought of one of my heroes of the faith, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, He was a pastor and theologian in Germany during the time of the Nazis. He became convinced that what the Nazis were forcing the churches into was wicked and wrong and needed to be opposed. But he also was shrewd enough to know that opposing them would result in his imprisonment and one day his death. At one point he fled to Europe, and later to the United States. His friends were telling him, Dietrich, don't go back to Germany. We know what's going to happen if you do. Uh, But he felt that the call of Jesus meant total commitment, even as he expressed compassion to those who needed to be turned from their errant ways. And so he made the fateful choice to return to Germany. And in short order, the fears of his friends proved to be right. He was rounded up by the Nazis, put in a cold, dark prison with cold, cruel uh, jailers. Uh, He would spend his days writing letters when he could, surviving as best he could, and yet never giving in to condemnation. Uh, You might think a man as committed to righteousness as he was would, would call down fiery judgment upon the Nazis, but that wasn't his heart toward them. He prayed for them. He appealed to them. And even in the last moments of his life, when they came to take him away for execution, he was in the midst of ministering to a group of other prisoners, some of whom were not Christians themselves. And in all of this, he saw what he was doing, his heart of compassion, as full commitment to Christ, to leave it all behind, to turn and follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. I thought it was fitting to end our, this sermon with some words he wrote in a book called The Cost of Discipleship. It's available back in the book wall if you're interested in picking it up. Highly edifying book. I highly recommend it. Bonhoeffer wrote, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Luther's, who had to leave the monastery and go into the world. But it is the same every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man 
and his call. Uh, Brothers and sisters, would you hear the call of your Savior? His call for you to follow him on the road that leads through death into eternal life. Would you be fully committed with his compassion in your heart? Would you do this in his name? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, would you help us? Would you help us to mean those words? I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Uh, We know of so many comforts that would keep us from being committed to the calling you placed upon us, Jesus. The busyness of modern life, all the comforts and ease that come with the conveniences of technology, uh, even just the hard realities of sickness and broken relationships. And yet, Jesus, we know that when you call us to leave it all behind to follow you, it is a good call. That though we will die along the way, we will gain eternal life. And even more, we will gain eternal joy in our relationship with you. Uh, So Jesus, would you help us? Would you fill us by your spirit with your compassion for the lost? And would you help us to be more committed to following you than we were when we began today? Oh Jesus, help us now even as we sing to do this in full devotion to you. We pray in your mighty name. Amen.